Hello and welcome to another episode of South Asia Chat, brought to you by the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. I'm your host, Ramita Ayer, Research Analyst at the Institute. On 24th February, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced a special military operation in Ukraine. The invasion is the first of its kind in a long time. It is the first time a major power has openly defied the norm of national sovereignty and territorial integrity in Europe in the last 80 years. The ongoing war has resulted in a catastrophic humanitarian crisis with several hundreds if not thousands of deaths and more than 1.5 million people already having fled the country. Two weeks since the war began, Ukraine's resistance has complicated Russia's efforts to take control of the capital and overturn the democratically elected government. The invasion comes at a time when the world is already dealing with the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, global economic instability, and a growing and increasingly assertive China. Given this, the consequences of the invasion for global and regional geopolitics don't look promising. To discuss the Russian invasion of Ukraine and what it means for the South Asian subcontinent, I have with me today Mr. Michael Kugelman, Asia Program Deputy Director and Senior Associate for South Asia at the Wilson Center in Washington. Michael, welcome to South Asia Chat. Thank you. Great to be here with you. To start off, can you tell our listeners about Russia's motivations behind the invasion? So land wars were supposed to be a thing of the past, but what we've seen in the last two weeks is perhaps the largest conventional military attack since the Second World War. So does Russia view the Ukraine invasion as part of a calibrated strategy to undermine the current liberal order, or is this just some kind of crude bid to restore the past glories of the Russian Empire? Right. So um, the only one, the only person that could conclusively answer that question is Vladimir Putin himself. Right. <laughs> He's uh, notoriously famous for being inscrutable. No one knows exactly what's going on in his head. Uh, my sense, though, given that uh, caveat, is that um, this invasion really constitutes a form of unfinished business um, for President Putin. Unfortunately, I think that this is really for him a way to finish the job of what happened in 2014, when, of course, the Crimea was annexed. And President Putin has always seen Ukraine as a part of Russia. Uh, President Putin also believes that the fall of the Soviet Union was a tactical error and that it should not have happened and that it should be reversed uh, in part. So I think for him, one of the best ways to do that is to recover, so to speak, the area, the country that he believes, uh, above all others, is a part of of Russia. Um, and I think that this sort of raises the question of, well, if he's thought that all along, why are we only seeing this invasion now? Um, it's, it's hard to say for sure. But I do think one could look at um, what had happened in, uh, in the U.S. over the last few years in that we had a president um, until recently, Donald Trump, who many had thought may actually pull the U.S. out of NATO. And so perhaps President Putin wanted to wait and see if that would actually happen before, before he decided to make a move in Ukraine. Because, of course, among other things, President Putin um, is very concerned about the idea of Ukraine joining NATO. And so, of course, President Trump did not make that move. And, of course, President Trump was voted out of power. President Biden came to power. And the Democratic Party uh, has always taken a more confrontational position 
toward Russia because of this view of the Democrats that the Democrat that the Russians were involved in meddling in the 2016 elections, which of course resulted in Hillary Clinton not winning. And so perhaps President Putin saw an opportunity um, there that he wanted to exploit, and that that could be why we're seeing this um, this invasion uh, play out now. But bottom line, yes, President Putin is someone that sees Ukraine in ways that many others, including Russia, do not. He's appealed to these very questionable historical grievances to justify uh, this uh, terrible, terrible uh, invasion in Ukraine. So the Russian invasion of Ukraine has also seen a global response like never before. The United States, along with its allies in Europe, have imposed very tough uh, financial sanctions on Moscow. Over the past week, we've also seen several other countries around the world follow suit. What do you make of these developments and what would be the implications of the sanctions on South Asian economies? Uh, in, an, in a recent article that you wrote, you mentioned that the conflict may also provide some economic opportunities for smaller South Asian countries. So can you please throw some light on that as well? Right. Well, I mean, the, the heavy sanctions uh, slapped on, on Russia are not at all surprising, not just because of the scale of the invasion um, and what that would entail in terms of punitive measures, but also because uh, the U.S. and the West recognize that they don't really have many military options. Uh, no one wants a third world war. And so uh, NATO is not contemplating sending boots on the ground uh, in, in Ukraine. So that means that the option, other options, non-military options, you know, aside from sending uh, military equipment into Ukraine, they're, they're relatively limited. So I think that's why we're seeing this uh, perhaps unprecedented um, type of, of, of sanction regime on, on Russia here. Um, and indeed, it's still unclear how that sanction regime will play out. I think one of the big questions is to what extent will the energy sector in Russia be sanctioned? That's so important, so critical, and also one that's very important for so many of the uh, the European countries who are much more dependent on Russian energy exports than the United States is. And it's much more difficult for European countries to accept that a, a full-fledged sanctions regime on Russia that even targets the energy sector. Um, but I think that we're, the impact is, is quite notable. We're already starting to see it in terms of the impact on energy prices around the world. In terms of what it means for South Asia, you know, it's very interesting and it depends on the country. I think that uh, certainly for a country like Pakistan, which only in recent years and really in recent months has been trying to scale up relations with Russia, uh, and when President and when Prime Minister Imran Khan made his awkwardly timed visit to Moscow in recent days, one of the main reasons for that visit was to pursue uh, commercial deals, uh, uh, trade agreements with with the Russians, including one involving energy. But now it's unclear to what extent those types of commercial agreements can go forward between Pakistan and Russia because of the sanctions regime. Uh, with India, I know that we'll talk about India later. I think really there the big question is what the impact of the sanctions on Russia will mean for future Indian arms imports from Russia. India, of course, uh, Russia is, of course, India's main arms supplier, uh, even though India has reduced its share of arms imports from Russia in recent years. And in terms of the impact of the, the sanctions on Russia on the rest of South Asia, indeed, there are some potential opportunities for some of the smaller states of South Asia, uh, particularly, um, you know, looking at countries like Bangladesh uh, and Sri Lanka and Nepal, these are countries that do have 
some degree of a commercial relationship with Russia, a modest one. Russia doesn't have much of a footprint in South Asia, but Russia has invested uh, in uh, nuclear power in Bangladesh. Uh, it's a key destination for Sri Lankan tea exports. There's also been a lot of Russian interest in the energy industry in Nepal. So I think that with Russia facing sanctions, with Russia becoming a pariah state, it's going to be looking for new markets and new partners well beyond Europe. And I think that South Asia, uh, some of these South Asian countries could be attractive uh, just because these are countries that don't have a hostile relationship with Russia. Uh, several of them have fairly friendly relations with, with Russia. And I think one could also argue that you know, so, so many of these South Asian states have been caught up in this intensifying competition for influence between India and China. And, these, and some of these countries may see an opportunity to look at a third uh, power, so to speak, to, to work with. But even though it's an opportunity, I think at the same time, uh, so many of these players in South Asia will be very cautious and hesitant uh, because they have important relations with, with Europe uh, and with the United States. Uh, they would not want to risk jeopardizing trade relations with Europe, including preferential uh, trade privileges by opening up more with trade with, with Russia. So I think that even though, even though there may be opportunities, uh, economic investment opportunities, trade opportunities for some of these smaller South Asian states, I think that they'll be very hesitant and cautious before agreeing to capitalize on them. Apart from the economic response of countries through sanctions, uh, we also saw in a special emergency meeting convened by the United Nations General Assembly in late February, where 141 countries supported the resolution that affirmed Ukraine's sovereignty, independence, and territorial integrity. The overwhelming majority in support of the resolution which condemned the Russian aggression revealed a collective diplomatic hostility and isolation of Russia. The South Asian response to the resolution, though, was equally divided. We had four countries, Afghanistan, Bhutan, the Maldives, and Nepal, support the resolution, while the other four, Bangladesh, India, Pakistan, and Sri Lanka, abstained from voting. Have you observed any interesting patterns regarding the positions that these countries are taking? Uh, what are their motivations, and what could such a pattern suggest? Yeah, well, you're absolutely right uh, that there is a, a divided response from South Asia countries on the UNGA resolution in a literal sense, and that uh, exactly half of the SAR countries uh, abstained from from that vote, which is which is quite notable, uh, as you suggest. Um, you know, I think that what it reflects is that um, you know every country, including South Asia, votes on these types of measures according to their own. Nas self uh, national interest and they're not going to necessarily vote a certain way just because the world superpower wants them to even when it comes to an one of the most egregious um, aggressions that we've seen in the world since the end of the cold war and indeed maybe since world war ii um, you know i think that if you look at bangladesh uh, it's a very interesting case bangladesh has had a fairly friendly and I would describe perhaps even a nostalgic relationship with, with Russia over the years just because of uh, how the, so the Soviet, the, the position that the Soviets took uh, in the 1971 independence war. Um, that's something that in Bangladesh is still remembered and has, I think, uh, contributed to a situation where many 
in Bangladesh look at uh, at Russia with some fondness. And as I had said before, uh, Russia has been a modest but notable investor in Bangladesh, particularly through nuclear power. So there, I think that Bangladesh simply wanted to to keep its options open. Uh, it didn't want to to jeopardize relations with Russia. Um, in that it did not want to jeopardize future uh, trade commercial links with, with Russia. It just wanted to maintain flexibility and space, which sounds familiar, of course, if you think about India's own uh, foreign policy goals. You know, with Pakistan, I think it's an issue of timing. Uh, as I had said before, uh, in recent months, uh, really over the last few years, Pakistan has sought to grow out its relations with Russia. And I think that given Pakistan's stated foreign policy goal of uh, quote unquote, shifting from geopolitics to geoeconomics, it's looking to uh, be a part of more connectivity and trade, uh, connectivity and infrastructure projects stretching from Pakistan into Afghanistan and Central Asia. And it views Russia as playing a key role in that story, particularly because of Russia's major influence in Central Asia. So I think Pakistan perhaps didn't want to rock the boat uh, with with Russia. Um, And I think with Sri Lanka, I guess it look at a similar case to Bangladesh. It has some some notable um, trade relations with with Russia, and it wanted to maintain flexibility and space to explore more of those relations if it wants to, um, even despite the potential constraint posed by the the sanctions regime regime on Russia. So I want to focus a bit more on India's abstention, which has received quite a bit of criticism, especially from the Western policy community. It has sparked speculations on New Delhi's commitment towards a rules-based world order. With the Indian Foreign Minister S. Jay Shankar announcing just some years ago that India wants to be a leading power, not just a balancing power, the country's silence over the issue seems quite counterintuitive to this image. So my question here is twofold. Firstly, do you think that India's abstention stems from its long-standing nature of pursuing tightrope diplomacy, or is it guided more by strategic considerations? Uh, like you mentioned, um, a majority of Indian defense equipment comes from Russia. And uh, secondly, given India's silence over the issue, do you see this decision affecting its relations with the West, which is quite critical to maintaining a favorable balance of power in Asia. So, for instance, if you look at the Quad, which comprises the United States, India, Japan, and Australia, India is the only country that has not imposed any kind of sanctions on Russia so far. How do you think India should manage its relations with Russia and the West? Yeah, it's a great question and so much to unpack here. Um, You know, I would push back against those... um, observers that say that India has been silent. Uh, I don't think it's been silent. Um, You know, each time it's abstained from a UN resolution uh, on the invasion, uh, the the its permanent rep to the UN has has posted uh, justifications for that decision. They've been publicly posted. And each time there's been reference to uh, the need to respect uh, territory and sovereignty per the UN's uh, uh, main principles. That's something right there. Uh, there have been a series of calls between Putin and Modi, um, and that's that, that's significant. But indeed, it, it is striking that um, that India has not been willing to take more of a bold stand. I don't think it's surprising, and I think that you know the, our, the listeners to this uh, discussion and really many that that look at the Indian relationship with Russia over the years would not be surprised at all, given that this is a consistent position that India has taken. 
uh, at the UN. It does not vote against Russia. It does not vote to criticize or condemn Russia when it engages in, in aggressions. And this goes back to the, to the Soviet days as well. Uh, and of course, you know, the most recent case being the annexation of Crimea when India was similarly um, uh, unwilling to criticize Russia um, for that. But indeed, I think that this is a position that's, in, that's increasingly untenable for India uh, for several reasons. One is that its relationship with the U.S., particularly its security relationship with the U.S., has grown so much even since 2014. So there's more pressure on India to take a harder line. And that pressure comes from other NATO countries as well. And also, this is indeed, I mean, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a particularly egregious aggression, not to underplay the, the egregiousness of the Crimea annexation, but this we're talking about, you know, an invasion of one of the largest countries in Europe. Um, and so I think that, you know, India has indeed been trying to continue to sit on the fence, but uh, I think there's a risk that that fence could start to, to collapse uh, soon. So what does this mean for India? What, what it, can it do? What, what should it do? You know, I think that it's unrealistic to expect India to change course and suddenly, you know, condemn Russia and, you know, call it a, uh, and you intentionally use all the, the type of language and rhetoric that you're hearing from the U.S. and other Western countries. That's not realistic. But I do think that there's, it's very realistic for India to try to play a type of mediator role, which I know doesn't necessarily come natural to, to India in, this, in these contexts. But We've seen there, there are relatively few countries that have the leverage and the influence with Russia because of friendship with Russia to be able to actually engage with Putin and try to deliver a message, even if it's delivered privately, to really focus on de-escalating uh, and the importance of doing so. We've seen the Israeli uh, prime minister in Moscow in recent days. Uh, the Turkish leader was there. I'm sure there'll be others as well. I don't see why Prime Minister Modi could not play that type of role either, which is very separate from starting to vote to condemn the Russian invasion at the UN and uh, and harshly criticizing Putin. Doesn't need to come to that. I think that quiet diplomacy, uh, quiet mediation is certainly something that can uh, that can be very practical and very realistic. Um, you know, let's face it, this war uh, in Ukraine, particularly if it continues to play out could impact Indian interests uh, very deleteriously for a number of reasons. One, uh, you know, it could distract uh, the U.S. Uh, and, its, and, and, and other like-minded countries from focusing on the Indo-Pacific policy, uh, which is meant to counter China, which, of course, is something that India certainly agrees with. Um, this war could uh, drive Russia closer to, uh, uh, to China. It could, it could strengthen Russia-China relations going beyond what to this point is largely an economic partnership. That would not be good for India, which has long seen Russia as a, a balancing effect, a country that it wants to balance out Chinese power. So India clearly has an interest in doing everything it can to get Russia to, to pull back. Uh, and it has options, as I've noted, short of, um, of just condemning Russia. Um, now, the impacts, um, the, the impacts of, of India's position, if it continues to stay subdued and doesn't really do much uh, to try to, to rein in the crisis, um, I think the relationship with the U.S. will be okay. Uh, there's so much insulation in the U.S.-India relationship that could withstand shocks such as the current one involving Russia. Now, this is a relationship that has been developing, strengthening exponentially uh, since the early 90s and particularly since the early 2000s. There's a lot of trust and goodwill, a lot of regular high-level dialogues. 
there's no issue there. And also, most importantly, China is the issue, the factor that is really uh, the glue that drives the U.S.-India relationship, shared concern about China's rising power. And if we agree that the war in Ukraine will make China even stronger, particularly if it um, gives, if it means Russia is, becomes dependent on China, particularly for economic support, thereby giving China more leverage, that will make China stronger, thereby amplifying the threat posed by China to U.S. and Indian interests. So I think that the U.S.-Indian relationship will be, will be fine because the key driver of that relationship will only become more apparent um, with this war. Uh, but the question is what happens down the road when it comes to the future of Indian uh, arms imports from Russia. Uh, jury's still out on what the U.S. decision will be on Katza. If, in other words, if it would actually be willing to sanction India for its acquisition of the S-400 Russian missile defense system. Uh, the conventional wisdom has been that India will receive a waiver from the United States and it will not be sanctioned. I still think that's the case. The main reason why the U.S. would be willing to give India an, an exemption still applies, even with India's position on the war in, in Ukraine. And that is that, on the whole, India has, in fact, reduced its arms imports from Russia in recent years. Um, so I think that won't be impacted. I imagine the waiver will still come, but I think we can expect the Biden administration to come down much harder on India about the need to scale back, if not entirely halt, any future arms imports uh, from Russia. And how India responds to that, I think, will go a long way in, in figuring out what impact this war could have on U.S.-India relations down the road. India is not in a position to completely halt its future arms imports from Russia. Uh, you know, it may have reduced its share of imports from Russia, but it's still dependent on Russia for about, what, 65, 70 percent of its, of, its, of its arms imports. Russia's indigenous defense production uh, is not there yet. It's not in a position to replace uh, the um, the arms that it's been able to get to, from Russia. And even with, with the fact that India has been able to diversify its sources of, of arms imports in recent years, not just the U.S., but also, of course, France and Israel, among others. Um, but it still looks to Russia as a key supplier, particularly for specific types of equipment that it doesn't get from anyone else. And, you know, we did see India... Uh, give in to, to U.S. pressure, uh, and it reduced uh, its, its energy imports from Iran significantly uh, when the U.S. sanctioned Iran some years ago. But it's very different with the case of Russia and arms imports, because when it came to energy in Iran, India had ready alternatives. It was able to uh, capitalize on what had been strengthening relations with the Saudis and other countries in the Gulf, where there were easily alternatives to Iranian energy. But it's different with, with Russia. Um, final point on this, the impact on the quad uh, here. I also would not overstate the impact that India's position on this crisis could have on its relations within the quad. Um, you know, the quad continues to be focused on things other than Russia, i.e. countering China. But what I will say here is that this war in Ukraine, I think, at the very least, will amplify the awkward differences between India and the other Quad countries on the issue of Russia and the position taken toward. Also, if Russia does indeed get closer to China, uh, and if China pressures Russia to expand its presence in the Indo-Pacific, 
then I think that makes it even more difficult for the issue of Russia to be overlooked or avoided within the Quad. And it is notable that when you had this virtual Quad leaders meeting in the other day, uh, Japan, Australia, and the U.S., you know, their readouts all pitched this as a discussion about uh, Russia's aggressions in Ukraine. And I believe the Japanese prime minister readout even indicated that, um, you know, this this is a threat to the, the rules-based order, which is pretty significant because that's what the Quad is all about. So I think that the Quad will be fine, but it's going to be very difficult to avoid the Russia issue, which in turn will, at the very least, amplify this awkward reality that India takes such a different position from the other Quad countries. Finally, delving a bit deeper into the question of China, going by recent events, uh, the growing US-China rivalry and the deepening of bilateral relations between China and Russia, there seems to be a growing Sino-Russian axis with seemingly two revisionist powers in Eurasia. What does this mean for the strategic choices of countries in South Asia? And also looking at it from the Chinese perspective, given that the global response towards the Russian invasion has been so harsh in terms of the sanctions, do you potentially see a change in China's calculations towards its growing relationship with Moscow? And how do you see this affecting the larger global balance of power? Yeah, so we've we've discussed this important uh, question of China-Russia relations and how it'll be impacted by the war. And I think that it's important to to look at this with some nuance because many, including myself, just 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 now, uh, have sort of put out this idea that it's quite likely that the war will strengthen China-Russia relations because Russia, being a sanctioned pariah state, will have no choice but to uh, throw itself at China and 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 ask for financial support, which would give China a lot of leverage and could put China in a position where it could pressure Russia to do a lot of things that could impact India deleteriously, such as reducing its its arms supplies to, to India um, and so on. But I think several points to be made here. Uh, first, China does not necessarily benefit from a prolonged war um, for several reasons. One, uh, the the idea that China would want to be seen as the ward of the Russian state, the idea that Russia or that China would be happy to sort of take on Russia as a country that would have to help, that I think that could be a bit concerning for Beijing. Uh, I mean, China is already seen as as that country that sort of looks after North Korea and you know has to sort of help this pariah state and providing economic support to to appease it and so on. I don't think China necessarily likes having to do that. And it could be a similar case with, with Russia. Um, you know, China may prefer that it, um, it not have to be dealing with a, a country so heavily dependent on it. So that's one factor. The other one is that the war, I think, um, is problematic for China because China is such a, obviously, a critical global economic player. Um, it has so many supply chains out there. Its Belt and Road Initiative means that it's literally present just about everywhere. And so it doesn't want to see prolonged instability and conflict. And particularly, um, you know, in Europe, uh, it just does not want to see that. That impacts its operations or could impact its operations. And, and it does not want to see that. So that's that's what I would say um, uh, about that. So it's it's very difficult to know really what will happen to the China relationship moving forward. But indeed, clearly there is a growing partnership here. Um, and I think that Pakistan also 
plays into this as well. I mean, we know that Pakistan is a longstanding ally of China, and it has been trying to deepen its relationship with Russia. So I think that if you sort of consider that that triad, that uh, that that trifecta there, I think that has pretty significant implications for for India, um, for sure. But you know what that means for the South Asian states more broadly is unclear. I think if we look at a country we haven't discussed yet, I think Afghanistan. Well, you know, for quite some time there had been hopes in Islamabad that Pakistan could work with China and with Russia to develop infrastructure projects and other investments in, Af- in Afghanistan leading into Central Asia. Uh, that can't happen unless all three of those countries are satisfied about the security situation in Afghanistan. But even the possibility of that happening, I think, is posed some concerns for India, which has already been locked out, or not locked out, but it, it faces new challenges in Afghanistan now that the Taliban is in power. And if it were to, ha- if, if it's two if it's two rivals, Pakistan and China, along with its friend, Russia, were operating in Afghanistan in lockstep, I think that could make it more difficult for India to figure out ways to become more engaged in, in that country, um, for sure. But in terms of the other South Asian states, I think that, as I had said before, it wouldn't impact them nearly as much. And I think that to the extent that the South Asian countries would want to continue to engage with Russia, they could certainly do that on bilateral levels through trade and investment. But again, only if they are comfortable doing that, given the given the the risk of of incur of running afoul of the sanctions regime of the Western sanctions regime, which certainly would not serve their interests, um, given how important they see their trade relations with Europe and the U.S., and in the case of Bangladesh, a country that already has been sanctioned by the U.S. because of the human rights abuses of one of its its major security institutions, uh, they'll need to be very careful uh, and very cautious as as well. So um, I think that really it's India that would be most concerned and potentially disadvantaged by this growing China-Russia relationship, uh, and, and particularly if you throw Pakistan in there as well. Final point, going back to what I had said before, India would much rather see more space between Russia and China so that Russia can be more of a balancer to balance out Chinese power. And that plays in with India's longstanding preferences um, for a world order where there is some degree of multipolarity. There isn't too much of it now. But Russia, for India, can sort of advance the idea of a more multipolar world by having a key power separate from China, separate from the United States. But if Russia's relationship with China continues to grow, obviously that undermines multipolarity in that you've got two major powers working together instead of separately. Uh, and that's something that would be uh, problematic for, for, India, for India's interests, for its foreign policy interests. Well, I really wish we had more time because there are several other aspects to unpack here as well. But thank you so much, Michael, for joining us today and sharing your insights. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You were listening to South Asia Chat. To learn more about our work, visit us at isas.nus.edu.sg. You can also get updates on our latest publications, events, and podcasts through social media. We're on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. 